with Ross Greenwood. This is Business Now. Hi there and welcome to a new week with Business Now. Thanks for your company. I'm Ross Greenwood. Coming up on the program today, the government's first federal budget is handed down tomorrow, but markets today soared with the prospect of US interest rates peaking in the coming months. Now, if you're a company in the wake of Gina Reinhart's experience with Netball Australia or a Linter's deal with Cricket Australia, do you really want to take the risk of sponsoring a sporting club? We analyse it with somebody who makes those deals. Plus, the creator of Red Bull dies, leaving behind a fortune worth more than 20 billion US dollars. So all of that and plenty more coming up on today's program. Other stories we think you should know about today include it might have been delayed for a week, but China's latest economic growth rate came out today and it was sharply higher than expected. China's annual growth rate for the three months to September was 3.9%, higher than market forecasts of 3.3%. Though retail sales are 2.5%, is less than half the previous quarter's growth, but better than expected industrial output drove the Chinese economy. The data was delayed by the Communist Party's 20th Congress, where President Xi Jinping Ping secured an unprecedented third term as head of the party, but he committed the country to its COVID zero policy, which has resulted in severe lockdowns and that slower rate of economic growth. But China's stock markets did remain broadly lower in the wake of these latest economic numbers. After a freedom of information search revealed the Reserve Bank as a base case of a 20% fall in home prices, its assistant governor, Christopher Kent, today reiterated that the central bank is seeking to rein in household spending. But the RBA continues to stick with its forecast that Australia and the vast majority of households will come through the economic slowdown relatively unscathed. Kent told the Commonwealth Bank Global Markets Conference today, some with small or no buffers, they're going to struggle more than others. They're likely, though, in our assessment, to be a small share of borrowers. Elsewhere in Sky News, political editor Andrew Clonell has today broken a story that the Australian energy regulators warning government that electricity prices will rise by up to 50% next year. You heard me right, 50%. The budget will contain a forecast for energy price rises between 30 and 40 percent next year. Now, this follows Alinta Energy's chief executive, Jeff Dimery, saying the prices could jump by 35% next year, though Dimery told us here on Business Now that this figure only refers to Victoria and that other states could be in for higher price hikes. Now, it seems to be true. One cause for the increased prices is the rising cost of coal, which has rocketed as a result of shortages in the aftermath of Ukraine and its war with Russia. But without doubt, this will weigh heavily on the fight against inflation in the coming year. Well, look, Ed's away for the next couple of weeks, so let's get across today's market moves. You've got me for the day. From the get-go, the stock market here soared, initially up around 2%, with a view that interest rates will soon peak in the US. The ASX 200 held on to most of the gains during the day, but you can see here it tapered off as China's stock market fell with those growth numbers releasing. At the close, the ASX 200, you can see, up a little over 1.5%, and that's around 102 points. It was really the gold miners that had a day out today. The leading stocks among the top 200 included Evolution Mining. Have a look at this, up more than 8%. Gold Row Resources there, up by 6.4%. Northern Star, up 5.4%. Other miners that did well included the lithium miner Pilbara Minerals, up 6.1%. Linus, the rare earth company, 
also up 6.1%, and Champion Iron was up by 6.3%. Those doing the worst, the shipbuilder, Austel, it fell by 6%. There's no real news here, though it was ordered to pay a small penalty last week because of a disclosure breach. Also, South32 put out a quarterly report today showing costs are rising faster than income, and also the beleaguered funds management company, Magellan. It was down another 1.2% today. But let's go to the federal budget due to be released tomorrow evening. It's pivotal for this government as it will be its first major test of its economic credentials and policies. Too much spending and the markets will tank as they did in the UK. And much of the selling will come down to Treasurer Jim Chalmers and the way he sells it in the first 48 hours. Let's bring in here independent economist Warren Hogan, also a consultant with a small business lender, Judo Bank. Warren, thanks for your time. One of the keys is inflation. Because if interest rates stay up higher um, for longer than the forecasts, then what's clear is this economy will be slower than what's forecast, even though they're suggesting even a 1.5% growth rate next year. Yeah, well, it's all about taking pressure off the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank's going to get the interest rate up to a neutral level. And if fiscal policy contributes to the tightening of policy in the economy... Maybe that's as far as it needs to go. and we'll get So what's inflation. neutral then? Well, I think neutral at the moment over the next few years is probably a cash rate of around three to three and a half. And that's generally what economists... So that means expect. interest rate rise in November, maybe December. Maybe February. Maybe February. You're pretty much there. Yeah, and I think most economists are settling on that sort of a view. The markets are pricing a little bit more in. I think they'll have to be a little bit more. And it, it's really up to these next few budgets to, to, to pull their weight. And, you know... So let's go to the Labor government. Now, they've already indicated they're going to spend in certain areas, things that they say are productive, things like childcare, things like training, things like the, the energy transition, they say, are their key priorities before the, before the election. So people have voted for that. They've got to now know that this is spending that could potentially add to inflation. Oh, certainly. And their challenge would be to try and find offsets for all of that out yeah. of the existing budget. And they've made noises to that to some extent, but they're not going to be able to do it. And, of course, sitting behind all of this are huge revenue increases because of strong commodity prices, the strong domestic economy and, of course, inflation. OK, and so are they, are they enough to offset the spending? Let's have a look at your scenario that you put out a chart here today. Yeah. Basically, if the government announced no new policies, no new spending initiatives. This is what you say would happen to the budget bottom line. We can see it. it's pretty much flat. It's improved on where it was during the COVID years, though. Massive improvement last year. We know that. And that should happen again this year. Probably a deficit of, what, $20, 30000000000 billion, down from an estimate in March of 80. Now, that's where we should get to if we don't want to add anything into the economy. But they will. But if they keep that to, say, 10 or $15 billion of new spending this year... I think that'll be OK. It's if they start spending 20 or 25. So really, for me, the, the line in the sand on the budget deficit is something around that 40, 45 billion. If it's any bigger, I'll be concerned that they're adding to the inflation pressures in the economy. But I've heard the Treasurer and the Prime Minister both say that any spending will improve Australia's productivity. That, say, for example, spending on childcare will get more people into the workplace and therefore allow them to pay taxes. So this is all the way in which the rhetoric goes. But the question is, is it going to add to inflation? Because if it adds to inflation, interest rates stay higher for longer. It's a moot point in terms of the immediate challenge. The immediate challenge is to slow this economy without interest rates having to get to a point Point where it puts the economy into recession. So, yes, we may get some medium to long-term benefits from these new policies, these reforms, you might say, 
but that doesn't mean you're not going to be putting spending into the economy now. So it is a payoff and it's a judgment about what that exactly means for inflation in the economy. Well, OK, so let's have a look at that because another chart that you've put out is broadly the consensus forecast on where inflation goes, even where the government, the Reserve Bank goes. Here it is here. And it basically says after peaking this year above 7%, it plunges back down to the perfect range between 2 and 3%. That seems to me to be the Goldilocks theory. But if you've got energy prices going up by 50 percent next year, that's not going to happen. It ain't and that's, happen. that's the story that interest rates stay higher for longer, that there's more pain to come for the household sector, for the corporate sector, and the slowdown in the economy could be greater than what the government expects. And of course, all of those things are right. And of course, that interest rates are higher and potentially stay higher for longer. So that really is a best case scenario. The government really needs to be taking pressure off the economy by tightening up fiscal policy. But it's not going to do that because we've already said it's said before the election and now it's spending on childcare, it's spending on training, it's spending on NDIS, it's got a more, more, more money to be spent on, it's spending on the energy transition. These are all things that will create more inflation, yeah. not take it away, surely. Exactly. And on top of those energy costs, it's going to make it very hard to get inflation down to 2 to 3% by 2024. OK, so then, if that's the case... They can't get that inflation down like your chart showed. The only way in which it goes is that interest rates have to stay higher for longer. Mm. How high do they stay if we look out and that scenario works? Well, I think you're going to see the cash rate get up to about 4 or 4.5% by the end of next year, early wow. 2024. So that means mortgage rates are out towards getting close to 7% at that stage. And that's what There's gonna, real hurt in the household that's sector. That's really going to hurt certain parts of the household sector. And, of course... It's going to make sure that we get that 20% drop in house prices that the RBA has been talking about. Warren Hogan, always good to have in the program. We'll get your perspective later this week on the budget as well. Many thanks for your time. Thanks, Ross. Well, the withdrawal by Gina Reinhart's Hancock prospecting of a $15 million sponsorship of Netball Australia comes with a salient warning for all other companies who sponsor sporting clubs. And this risk-averse environment in which we live, many boards and chief marketing officers might correctly say, why bother taking the risk at all? So let's get to someone who negotiates those deals on behalf of companies, individual sports people and the sporting clubs themselves. Carly Green-Medina is the Managing Director of Agency X and joins us now. Carly, many thanks for your time. So here, here I put to the point. Hi, Ross. Thanks for having me. So, OK. So in the case of, of Gina Reinhardt, She's done this through a form of altruism. They needed the money. She stepped in as a wealthy Australian. She didn't need the publicity. That's, this has not been done for publicity. So all of a sudden it turns into adverse publicity on her behalf, as it has for Alinta and the sponsorship of Cricket Australia. So the, the question for any company is, why would they ever bother sponsoring a sporting club in this environment? Oh, I think it's about putting a little bit in perspective. Gina continues to sponsor other sports as well. She's only pulled out of netball. And, you know, sport is the fabric of Australia. Look how hard we kept it going over COVID. There's obvious benefits to brands to continue to support our sporting environments, our clubs, our athletes. There is returns there for them. There's brand awareness. There's, you know, they're there to sell products. And sport gives them that opportunity. There is the reverse of it, and that is the flip side. Something happens such as what happened in Manly, say, for example, with their, uh, with their pride jersey, mm -hmm. um, and it manages to flip on the whole football club, on the whole thing. So, you know, all I'm saying is that now money's going to become tight in a tighter economy. It's going to get harder. There's only a certain pool that these sporting clubs have got to, got to dwell on. It's not as though these sponsors raining down from the ceiling. 
Look, I think it just highlights the collaboration that's needed between brands, clubs, associations and the athletes. All three, four need to have a, a stake at the table and their voices need to be heard. And there needs to be an alignment of values, actions, goals on everyone's part. But do you imagine, though, that sporting clubs should really go to their players before they take on a new sponsor and say, are you comfortable with this? Is that really a reasonable thing when you've yeah. got an employer-employee relationship? Yeah, I absolutely think that athletes should have a, a, a position at the table. You know, we've put morality clauses on athletes since the beginning of time of commercial sport. And so it's a vice versa relationship. So athletes need to have a stand. Otherwise, the clubs, the brands, they're not going to be aware. And you have situations of what happened at Manly. OK, there's also a bit of hindsight in this as well, because things that were previously able to sponsor successfully in sport and go back to cigarettes, you can go to alcohol today, which still does it. You can go to, oh, I'll give you a classic. Cryptocurrency is a classic. It's out there today. You could argue that some people come to harm as a result of investing in cryptocurrency. Nobody seems to be blowing up about those types of sponsorships in sport today. Look, hindsight, all of those, you know, alcohol, tobacco, that's all hindsight. So, and yes, crypto has a place as well. There will be other brands that come along as well that will also be controversial. But, you know, you can be, you can be a brand that sponsors a club like a building company, a, um, you know, an electrical company and still have issues with a brand. So there's always going to be controversy about different brands. It's about being a, the brand being aware of what potential controversy is, the clubs being aware, and then being also aware of what the athletes have to say about it. Just a really simple one for you, Carly. In this environment, where does the power lie? Does the power lie with the sponsor, the company itself? Does it lie with the sporting club? Or does it, does it right now lie with the individual sports person or team environment? Uh, it's a great question. Look, I think it lies with all three. Um, I think athletes, they have three forms of revenue. Their sporting revenue, their endorsement revenue, and whatever their future potential is, if that's business, things like that. So athletes are becoming more and more aware that they need to protect those latter two. They need to protect their endorsements. They need to protect their future business interests, which is why they're now having more of a voice. Uh, brands have to be careful, you know, coming into these environments, who they do align with, with re potential recessions coming along, are, are those brands going to be viable come two, five years into sponsorship agreements in current environments? And then brands need to be really aware too what they're stepping into and what, what their potential exposure is. And it's, I always come back to a brand, you've got to ask you why. Yes. Why are you in this? I've got to, got to agree. And it's a really good subject. We'll come back to it in the future again, Carly. Carly, many thanks for your time today. Carly Green Medina is the Managing Director of Agency X. Well, coming up after the break, the latest trends from the housing markets from around the country and the man behind Red Bull dies, leaving a fortune worth more than 20 billion US dollars. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, 
a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for being with us here on Business Now. Let's take you around the housing markets over the weekend and the auction clearance rates. And first up, if we go across the country as a whole, Australia had 1,597 auctions. The clearance rate is not bad at 57.7%. Now, in Sydney, there were 442 auctions. The clearance rate here just below that national average at 54.8%. In Melbourne, stronger auction weekend, 742 auctions. Look at that clearance rate there, 63.2%, showing no signs of these rising interest rates. In Brisbane, just 64 auctions. The clearance rate there, pretty low, 34.4%, but not many auctions. In Adelaide, 59 auctions. This is pretty impressive. 67.8% is the clearance rate there. And equally as impressive is in the ACT. In Canberra, 53 auctions, and the clearance rate is 62.3%. So as I say, it's interesting to bring in here Angus Moore, Senior Economist with REA Group. Angus, look, I know you're a former Reserve Bank staffer. I just want to ask you about this freedom of information request and release of information that's come out, showing the Reserve Bank believes peak the trough that home prices will fall by some 20%. Now, that's a pretty big forecast, given what we're seeing as pretty strong auction clearance rates right now. Yeah, there was certainly a lot of information in there. I was leafing through it this morning over a coffee and probably needed a second one to get through all 60-odd pages of it. They certainly did look at a number of scenarios, one of which was a 20% fall and the impacts that that would have on the broader economy. Our expectation is we won't see a fall that large. We're expecting we'll see something more like 10 to 15%, which was one of the scenarios that the RBA looked at. And that would be kind of consistent with the pace of interest rates that the RBA looks like they're going to follow. We are starting to see that temper a bit, in part given global outlook, uh, which is mm. deteriorating a bit. That would not put as much downward pressure on interest rates and, uh, sorry, excuse me, on house prices. And so we may not see that 20% decline. OK, because this is the interesting part, because if you start to get 20% declines in home prices, pretty much the gains that were made in the low interest rate environment of COVID would be wiped out. It would also raise questions for some at the margin. This is what the Reserve Bank continues to talk about, people at the margin. Those people who lose jobs, those people who get divorced at the wrong time, those people who have borrowed at the wrong time. But that course does put some pressure on banks, put some pressure on the housing sector and you get a sense that some people are waiting for those cheap deals to come out. The question is whether they're really going to be as cheap as what many anticipate. Yeah, I mean, as you say, the 20% is a little bit of a magic number because it is the typical LVR for LMI or lender's mortgage insurance. So most people have a deposit of 20% or more, meaning if prices fall by less than 20%, they're still ahead on their loan. So 20% is a bit of an important benchmark there. Though, of course, not everyone has exactly the 20% yes. deposit. Some have more, some have less. Mm -hmm. Certainly, for people that borrowed more recently, those falls are going to be more important, particularly if they borrowed in the last sort of 12 months where prices were near peak. But, of course, not many people did do that. You know, the number of homes that turn over in a year relative to the number of overall homeowners is quite small. So most people are still sitting on big gains in equity from when they bought. OK, there's one area, though, where it becomes important, and that is in new developments that are going up right now. And, of course, in many cases, people have put down a 10% deposit. But if prices fall by 20%, they may walk away, leaving the developers to try and scramble to get it done. That's where, again, there can be a contagion if things fall aggressively. 
aggressively. But so far, we haven't really seen it. We've seen it with the construction companies that have gone bust, but not necessarily with the developers themselves. Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on in the new homes market at the moment. Um, construction costs have obviously increased enormously in the past year, something like 20% to build a detached house, depending on how you're counting. And that's for material costs alone. That's excluding labour costs, which you know, labour's been pretty hard to find. There's been a lot of disruptions. What that all means is that we actually have a record number of homes under construction at the moment and waiting to be completed. Part of that's home builder, part of it's low interest rates. We are seeing the rate of new homes commencing slow down, but the rate of commence, uh, completions, excuse me, in yes. terms of the number actually being built and people taking possession of, actually hasn't picked up despite that enormous pipeline. No. And is that largely greenfield sites for, for new homes or houses, as it were, or is it apartments? It's a bit of both. So there are a lot of apartments under construction, but the big ramp up has been in greenfield in detached houses. We saw that jump from something like 60,000 under construction to more than 100,000 under construction oh. today over the course of the pandemic. It normally takes something like three quarters to build a home. That's taking longer at the moment and we're working through that pipeline more slowly because of all of the various disruptions affecting the construction. And that all has an impact on price at the end of the day. Angus Moore, always great to have you in the program. Many thanks for your input today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So just to finish up the program, you might see the brand Red Bull on just about everything from Formula One to airplane racing, dirt bikes and the X-Cross games. But do remember, it's still a high-energy soft drink. Red Bull's creator is the Austrian Dietrich Mateschitz, and he died over the weekend, though the cause has not yet been made public. But he is credited with the creation and selling of the Red Bull drink, which is said to have been created from a modified recipe for a Thai energy drink. Now, not bad for a company that now spends between a billion and two billion US dollars a year on marketing. Mutterschitz owned 49% of the company and is valued by Forbes at 20 billion US dollars, making him the 71st wealthiest person on the planet. But let's just all hope that the departed Dietrich followed Red Bull's slogan into the afterlife and that it gave him wings. Now, remember that our budget coverage from Parliament House tomorrow will be tomorrow and also on Wednesday. You'll hear from Australia's business leaders, chief economists and key politicians. Sky's coverage will kick off tomorrow at 4.30pm Eastern Time with Business Now, then go right through the night, including Treasurer Jim Chalmers' budget speech. That'll be live. So that is it for today's program. Business Now does return tomorrow at 4.30 and then 11.30pm. And don't forget, you can find all the latest business and finance news right here on Sky News and via our website, skynews.com.au. Thanks for your company today. We'll see you tomorrow. My name is Manny Karoudis, and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.